If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 11 today. We're, we're at a pivotal point in the presentation of the King of Mark's Gospel, of where Jesus enters Jerusalem. But I wanted to start this way. That, you know, there's um, if you took all the energy that every person on the planet Earth uses in a full year, lights and cars and heat and air conditioning and everything, and you add it all up, it's a certain amount of energy. And then you know the sun is a great ball of energy, and it just blazes out energy, and some of that energy hits the Earth. For how long do you think the sun would have to blaze and hit the Earth to get the amount of energy that we use in a year? Some of you probably already know the answer, but the answer is two minutes. Two minutes. I've got a God who made the sun. He blazed, and not the sun, billions of other stars. He's the God of heaven. He's the great God who made everything. And then, at the appropriate time, he came to earth. The wonder of Jesus walking around on earth, when all of the things we do and all of our struggles and all everything compared to him, that's the frame that I hope we walk in today. We're talking about the king of kings. We're talking about this high king of heaven, the creator of all, the God of every living thing, higher than we can imagine, the culmination, not just of the visible world in general revelation of what, what we can see. He's, he's the culmination of special revelation, what cannot be seen, but has been revealed by God so you and I might know him. I invite you today to know this king. So we approach Jesus in Jerusalem today, and I want to do it tenderly, rejoicing, amazed, because what gets shown about God deeply changes who we think he is. Walk with me. The king arrives. Mark chapter 11, we'll start from the very first verse. We're going to do the pieces that are bound together here, which is the first 26 verses. Here we go. First, I want to talk about kings and donkeys, because that's what Mark wants you to see. Verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied, which no one's ever sat. Untie it. And bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Okay, this doesn't seem like much of a start. They draw near to Jerusalem. They're about a mile away, a little over a mile away. And he's standing at the Mount of Olives. Okay, this is precious. And and when you walk into this with me, think about what's going on. The king of heaven is coming to Jerusalem where he's going to go in and die for the human race. All the sin, all the evil. And then after he's done with his mission, he's going to come back out to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is where he's going to go. Back to heaven. 
This is where the ascension is, right? So we're now we're at the, the unit, the, the part where Jesus now is here. He's at the part where he's going to go in and do, and he's going to come back and go. This is the first step, the arrival of the king. So, so think with me for a minute. Why start with this? Who cares about the donkey? You're going to go find a colt that no one's ever sat on, bring it, and if I'm going to ask you, just say the Lord has need of it, and he'll give it back. Is it Jesus? He's got a sort of a spidey sense that there's a donkey there. You know, like he has x-ray vision. He's looking a mile ahead. Ooh, there's a donkey. I'd like to use it. I don't think so. It's faith, right? It's trust. What do you mean it's trust? In the Spirit of the Father, by the Son. Right? That, that though he's laid down his power, Philippians 2 said Jesus laid it down, right? Though he's emptied himself in utter humility, he's trusting what's been said of him in this word of God. What, what's been said? Well, you, you remember the prophets, right? Let's go back to Zechariah 9 for a minute. I'll put it on the board. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. So here's Jesus and he knows the scriptures and he knows it's about him and he knows what he's going to do. And he says, you know what? There's a donkey waiting for me. Because the word says so. This is in the middle of a passage, Zechariah 9, about the, the conquering arm of God and how he will rescue his people, how he will destroy their enemies, and the start of God giving hope, of God destroying the enemies of his people, of his rescue. Jesus knows. The Bible's true. This is the rescue. I'm the king. Guys, go look for the donkey. Disciples, go get it. And it's going to be a colt, a young donkey, and it's going to be available. Go get it. And so, this happens. Verse 4. They went away. They found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. They untied it. Some of those standing there said, hey, why are you stealing our donkey? Said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. I'll tell you what, this is kind of remarkable. I mean, if someone says to you, hey, hey, um, um, let me say to you, they just start taking your car. Wait, what, what are you doing? Oh, I need your car. I'll bring it back. How much more if it's a car that you just bought that you've never ridden? Your precious new Maserati. And you're like, uh, what are you doing? Drive away on my car. Uh, the, the Lord needs it. Try that sometime. It'll go over really well. What is this? This is God making it clear exactly what the Old Testament said. It's happening. It's amazing, right? This is so awesome. Something is afoot. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And and, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. This is this is meant to be a beautiful scene. And, and it is, right? 
the triumphal entry, the crowds shouting, palm branches waving, Jesus, Jesus, these clothes strewn all over the, the pathway that he's coming in, the, the palm branches laid down so his, 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 his donkey goes forward. I, I want you to see that the, the jarringness of it. And I know you might think, well, there are judges in Israel who rode donkeys and the donkeys are kind of cool. No, this is a young little donkey. And I think what I put on your front cover was, it's not so far. It's like, this is a little jarring. But, but, but first see why it's jarring. Cause they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. If you're a student of scripture, you know that that's an English word. We say Hosanna, but it's transliterated from the Greek word that's Hosanna in your text in Mark. That's transliterated from a Hebrew word that actually means save us now. God save. It's only found in the Hebrew Bible in the Psalms. And so they're shouting, they're yelling, and it's closely followed always by salvation. Salvation is here. They don't really even know what they're saying, this crowd. But what they're saying is so true. Look, look, this is where it's from. Psalm 118, 24 says, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We sing that song sometimes. And then it says in verse 25, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. There's the Hosanna. And what's going on, and we start to think, and and you should start to, wow, this great scene of the king coming in, and they're singing Hosanna, and it's a strong, wonderful picture. But even the psalm they're singing, they don't even realize. Go three verses back. I'll put it on the board for you. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Right? It's just amazing. The cornerstone rejected, and so while they say, save us, save us, what they're saying is, hey, the rejected one is coming. The one who will save. And you're crying out. You don't even really know. Salvation is here. And why? Because of the coming kingdom of David. This is the Davidic king. We read that. Psalm 7, right? The promise of God in the Old Testament that David, you will have a king forever from your line and his kingdom will never end. And here comes Jesus in the line of David. And they're even singing, oh, the kingdom of David. Not, not even necessarily knowing that Jesus is from the line of David. <laughs> This isn't so far away from the rocks crying out, right? When in their ignorance, yea, they see the massive, incredible king forever, the promised king. And it's, it's Jesus. He's the one who made the stars. He's the one who made us. He's here. Hosanna. Salvation arrives. Save, please. And they're exactly right. They're incredibly right. Jerusalem's receiving her king with salvation in his wings, with the blessing of the prophets, with the declaration of the God in heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But but you've got to think on it in light of the donkey. Because most of this period was spent on go find the donkey. We're riding on a donkey, not a steed, not an army at his back, 
Jesus and the guys on foot and him on a kind of wobbly colt, a, a donkey, and the king of the universe, the maker of the sun, the creator of all, and then on the donkey so he can ride it, they put their cloaks. They don't do laundry every week. I'll tell you, if I take my workout clothes off at home, no one in my family will even get close to them, much less sit on them. The king of heaven sitting on dirty laundry on a donkey and rightly proclaimed, but that picture got to stick in your mind because otherwise we think, here's to Jesus and he's triumphantly entering and he's coming in as the king. Yeah, they're saying it, but they don't even realize he's coming in sitting on dirty clothes and sitting on a donkey. The humility of universe's king coming in on a donkey. This is the revelation of God, right? That you would not know, you would not even think to know, except that it happened. This is the king of all, the Davidic king, the perfect representation of God. And God cares not at all about your dirty laundry. He cares not at all about right-handed power. He simply is. And he's coming through and tearing through every ladder and scorekeeping and accounting, and he just says, I'm upside down, that's how the world works, but you're right to give me adoration because I am the king. It's just different than you'd think. No army. These adoring crowds later are going to watch him be crucified. This is the king, and he's lowly, and he's riding on cloaks, and he's on a rent-a-donkey. Behold your king. Okay. That's kings and donkeys. And then directly tied to it in our text, and as we're students of Scripture, we don't want to miss this, directly tied to it, where does Jesus go? Immediately he comes in. The triumphal entry happens. Jesus heads somewhere right away. And where he heads is where you think he might head, to the temple. Let's take a look. Temples and trees. Verse 11. So he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, so Jesus comes in. He's here. He's in Jerusalem where he's going to do this amazing act of salvation. And his first stop is right where I think, I I hope if you're going to pick somewhere, you'd expect. To his place. To the temple, right? This is the place where God dwells. This is where God dwells with his people. Who's Jesus? God. Where does he go? To where God dwells. But did, did, did you catch it? Triumphal entry. The king arrives. He goes into the temple. He turns around and leaves. And what? It's actually really remarkable. He doesn't do the stuff he's going to do later. He goes to the temple. He looked around. Oh, hey, he saw everything. And then he left. What's going on? This this ragtag crowd he walked in with, and then they left Jerusalem. They went back to Bethany. I don't get it. Well, don't get comfortable because it's going to get even more confusing. Look, on the way, the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. It's not the poor tree's fault, says Mark. 
And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So, <laughs> so Jesus had this triumphal entry. He goes in. The crowds are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's this amazing, humble picture because Jesus comes in on this donkey on cloaks and there's no like army or anything. But he goes right to his, the place, the temple. He goes and he leaves. The next day, he gets up, comes in, and what he wants you to see is him stopping and trying to get something to eat from a fig tree that's not even in season, that's just leafy, and there's nothing there. And so he says, curse you. Never again. You had no fruit now for me. You'll never have fruit anymore. Hmm. What's going on? Keep going. Let's look at what's connected. So they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. Oh, now he's back to the... You see that? So temple visit, fig tree, temple visit. They begin to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. This amazing theme, scene of authority. Jesus just comes in, and he's clearing out the temple. Go away. People were selling, right? At least in some commentators, there's argument over this, but reasonably, at least, different animals so that people could make offerings. Think about it with me. If you were sinning, and you said, i got to restore my fellowship with God, the most precious thing you could ever have would be restored fellowship with God. And if someone said, hey, what you need to do is to make a sacrifice to do that, and it'll cost you a buck or two, guess what that's called? A bargain. It's a bargain. You can be right with the God of the universe for $5. Buy my pigeon and you can go make your sacrifice. You don't have one, right? You need one, I'll give it to you. So what if I make 50 cents? Communication with God, forgiveness from God. So buy the animal, get something way better, peace with God. And Jesus is after it. He's getting rid of it. He's cleaning it out. He's saying, you've made it a den of thieves. I don't like the money making. But 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 really, honestly, there's something else going on because the fig tree. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Here it is, right? We know this, a temple, a house of prayer for the nations. That means a place of dependence on God, a beautiful beacon of who God is. And God comes in and has to run off the people. And and the priests in charge, what do they want to do? Destroy Jesus. So let's just rephrase that. Destroy God. Right? They're afraid of Jesus and afraid of the people and Jesus' popularity. And Jesus is speaking against them. So what are you supposed to see? I think what you're supposed to see, I think what you're supposed to draw away with me, is the link to the fig tree. Jesus came to the fig tree with all the look of fruit, with all the leaves, and what didn't it have? Fruit. So he cursed it and said, never again. Jesus came to the temple, the place of prayer, and didn't find anything. So what did he do? He left. 
Where does he go, Jesus, when he leaves the temple? Funny you should ask. Let's keep looking. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree. Dude, unless you're really dumb. At this point, you're going, oh, temple, fig tree. Maybe I can rearrange the letters. They'll spell each other. The link is that strong. Now he goes by the fig tree, and he sees it withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Okay, wait there for a minute. Jesus said no more to the fig tree the day before, and the fig tree total up and withered away. What Jesus says, it goes, right? If Jesus says it, it's going to happen. And so here's the unstated conclusion, right? I think you're supposed to connect it. What's going to happen to the temple? What's going to happen to that system? What's going to happen to the law-keeping, obedience-minded, morality-measuring, self-keeping system from cursed to what? Dead and gone. I mean, you remember it, right? You remember the great covenant that was made by the people of Israel, the great covenant. And, and they actually went on two mountains in Deuteronomy, one mountain over here and one mountain over there. And they yelled out to each other the blessings if they kept the covenant and the curses if they didn't. What have they not done? What are these priests and chief priests? Who do they represent? They represent that. This way that you might keep yourself before God by being a good kid, by keeping the rules, by doing the law. And and, and here, you know what? Jesus finally comes and says, you know what? There's no fruit in that. And let's see how I did the fig tree in this this parable. The fig tree's dead. What's going on with that system? Where's that going to go? If you don't see that, if you don't see that link, then the next paragraph will make no sense to you. But if you do, the next paragraph is deep and rich and life-giving. Let let me show you. Because the question is, if it's cursed, then what? If that way, if if the only way, now, now I can't, now you know what? He just got rid of all the birds. And I'm supposed to do a little bird offering. He just got rid of all the, I, I can't, well, no peace with God. What, what I, what do I get? How, how? And so he says, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. And he goes on more. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass. It will be done for them. Him. So, so, so think about it. The most terrible things you can imagine. This, this fig tree that really didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't the season for figs. It just didn't have figs. And Jesus curses it and it dies. Or all of the mountain. What mountain? Mount Zion. The temple. So you've been the temple mount. Cut itself off and throw itself into the sea. If it was all to go away, if you trust, have faith in God. 
That's the hope you have. Have faith in God, though the fig tree doesn't blossom. Have faith in God, though the temple be destroyed. Have faith in God's plan that's now been revealed to you. I'm here. It's not a statement to pray harder or believe more. It's a statement of trust me. What you sang about, Hosanna, save now. What you proclaim, the Davidic king, it's coming to pass. Salvation comes now. This is not some generic statement. Oh, it's been put on us like a yoke to say, you better pray harder. And if you're not getting what you asked for, it's because you don't have enough faith. Name it, claim it, pray for it, get it. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, hey, this is not generic. It's a huge statement of what's about to come. Jesus is for us, him alone. Every other pathway totally blocked. It will seem to be a disaster. It will seem unfair. Poor fig tree. And it will be totally taken out of our hands. And we have to what? Have faith in God. Not as a work. But as the only thing we can do is trust. Not a generic faith, a faith that Jesus will do it alone. So what is it you're going to need? Salvation. Receiving by God, God to dwell among you and I. How will we get it? We're going to receive it. Look, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, it will be yours. (laughs) What's the greatest hindrance to that? What's the greatest hindrance to, to, to asking and receiving? Is it the greatest hindrance now? We think, I think the greatest hindrance is my behavior. It's my sin. You don't deserve God to take you in. You're not better than those who are selling birds in the temple. You have no standing, no good works, no morality, no flame to hold up and wave before God. You've got nothing. He says, ask and believe and all these failures, all this wrongness, It doesn't count against you. You have to receive salvation. You have to depend on Jesus and his forgiveness of you. Sin no longer to keep you from God because Jesus is going to forgive you. That's the connection that Jesus Christ is making right here. Even if we try and twist it around to say, boy, if you just pray harder, God will give you what you ask. Are you kidding? You think Jesus is talking about that as he, the king, comes into Jerusalem to be hailed and he's going to the cross for you? And we go, oh, well, 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 it's just about how hard you pray. It's not. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so your Father, who also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Again, the way your flesh wants to hear it is this is a tit for tat. And, and, and like somehow Jesus is ever about that. If you forgive, I'll forgive you. Like Jesus is doing this. Show me your forgiveness, kid. Then I'll decide if I'm going to forgive you. Is that how Jesus came to the cross? Never. This is dependence on another, right? This is prayer as dependence that the God in heaven is not far off, but has drawn near. He promised in the king, the forever king, David, and he's, he's cursing the old way and it's drawing into a close the Mosaic law done forever. That doesn't lead to you now proving your fealty by another way. It means receiving forgiveness from the son and it touches our hearts and it means a way forward. It's never justice for me. 
I just want my pound of flesh. That's pretty stinky. You don't need that. It's not about justice. The way forward is what? Forgiveness. That's an amazing thing, precious people. The way forward is not even justice for others, but forgiveness. Because that's what Jesus does. That's his way. That's all he does. And see that he's after forgiveness, not restitution. Not buy a sacrifice and go do it. Not repentance in the self of self-activity towards not sinning. Quite the opposite, actually. He says forgive is to recognize the huge gulf between you and God. He has forgiven you. Christianity is about receiving forgiveness. And so forgiveness, this forgiveness culture that Jesus now says, this is what it's about, forgiveness. It's a gift culture, right? No one ever deserves to be forgiven. Not unless you set up a system where it's like, okay, I will forgive you with these four qualifications. You will, for the next 20 years, pay me $20 a day, buy me lunch. Make restitution for all the wrongs you've done. Promise never, ever, ever to sin against me again. Okay, that's not, that's not forgiveness. That's something. But it's not forgiveness. Forgiveness says, I'm doing nothing. They're doing nothing for me. I forgive that. Why would I ever do anything so stupid? That's to forgive when someone really wrongs me. And by the way, this is huge. This starts to get super practical in like two seconds. If you're married, or if you have a kid, or if you're a human being and interact with another human being. Why? Because I see Jesus on a donkey, the king of heaven, nothing, sitting on dirty laundry, coming in, To die for me. And that's my trust that he did it. That that's the only trust I have. Including my notes being on the floor. The king of heaven. This is beautiful, right? So it doesn't become another way to get to God or how Jesus is a new ladder. So now we're going to measure our forgiveness quotient. Like, how much have you forgiven? Well, I don't know, 13.2 times. How many of you? 14 and a half. Well, (laughs) forgive some more. That's precisely what he's pushing against. He's saying, if your trust is in me, you've given up hope in the way of the temple. You've given up hope in the way of the law. You've now given, given your hope into my salvation of you. And I'm just forgiving you as a gift. Receiving this free forgiveness is the mark of heaven. So here's the king of heaven today. And what you see is him sitting on a donkey colt. He's a different kind of king. And we believe in an upside down, upside down from all the things that we naturally lean to in Jesus. He is one who serves. He is one who loves. He is one who gave it all. Not demanding that we serve or else. Not giving first is what he does. He is Hosanna, save please, and become salvation for all. His reign is forever. His powers, he has conquered all powers. And when he arrived, he showed what his life would be about, believing he had done it, despite all the markers of him not being what we think a strong king would be. He does not need you to be strong for him. He is strength. 
He does not need you to be anything for him. He's your savior. And his judgment is on the way it was. The keeping of obedience to get yourself close to God, the system of justification to climb to God, to get yourself clean by sacrificing the blood of some animal. It didn't work because we didn't work. Our flesh says this is unfair. People get forgiven who don't deserve to be forgiven by God. And Jesus says, you're darn right. I cursed the fig tree, says Jesus. It wasn't in season. I did it so you would see. That way is closed forever of figuring out who deserves it. And the way has come to say you don't deserve it. But the king of heaven came. This is super strong. Cursed is that way. And so we need to take such care this morning not to go down that path again, but to hold on to receiving forgiveness rather than proving our worth in a culture of forgiving, not a culture of reforming me, not a culture of proving me, not of examining me, but of worship. That's what we did this morning. Majesty. The king has come. And radical truth of sin forgiven and not personally restituted. There's no hope for the old way, though it calls us still. And how I pray you might leave the little fire made of sticks that you make that thinks has energy. And you might come to the sun, the blazing fire that in two minutes gives all the energy you'd use for a year or for a lifetime. That's the forgiveness we get. That's Jesus. Let's pray.